Hey everyone, I have an exciting announcement. We recently secured a gift of $15,000 to match all donations given by the end of the year. As a fully self-funded project of the Commonwealth Club, we rely on supporters like you to bring this podcast to you every week. To support more climate conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to climateone.org donate. Your gift of any amount will be doubled. Thank you for listening and for your support. Now for this week's pod. When it comes to corporate climate action, is the customer always right? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to strike because the waters are rising. We're going to strike because the waters are rising. We're going to strike because the people are dying. We're going to strike because the people are dying. Last September 20th, more than 1,000 Amazon employees walked out of corporate headquarters in Seattle and offices from Los Angeles to Dublin. It was the culmination of a long-waged employee campaign urging CEO Jeff Bezos and other upper-level management to reduce the company's carbon footprint. That was a moment when I realized that we as employees could change what the company was doing. Just the mere act of signing a letter could move the largest company, move the richest man in the world to do something. I am here because Amazon employees heard them and said, yes, we will stand with you and we're bringing big tech into the fight. Workers at a growing number of companies are pressuring their own CEOs to take a stand on climate change. And the message isn't just coming from within. Many corporations are feeling the heat as consumers and investors hold their feet to the fire demanding both action and transparency on everything from supply chain to waste disposal. But does incorporating climate risk into corporate decisions help or hurt business? On today's program, we'll hear from experts who are keeping score on how the big players are doing, what they could be doing better, and what it means for their bottom line. But first, we'll talk with Amazon employees Sarah Reed and Jacob Adamson. Reed is a user experience researcher and Adamson is a software developer. They're both members of Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, or AECJ, the group that organized the September walkout. In Greenpeace's 2017 scorecard called Click Clean, Facebook, Google, and YouTube all scored an A. Amazon got a passing grade of C. Not good enough, say many employees. At their annual shareholder meeting last May, Amazon user experience designer Emily Cunningham stood up and challenged Jeff Bezos to come out on stage so she could address him directly. Sarah Reed was in the room where it happened. That was a really powerful moment. When Emily stood up to introduce the resolution, uh, she asked us to stand with her. And so the moment of seeing those employees stand up and support her, and her speech was so powerful. I mean, I know several of us, including myself, cried when she spoke about um, the next generation and the future of the youth globally. And so, yeah, it was a really, really powerful moment uh, to see such support for something as radical, I guess, as climate change. Jacob, you were outside the building. What was your take, uh, your experience on that day? And when the company said it would release its carbon footprint later in 2019, how important was that for you personally as a moment for the company? I think that that was a moment when I realized that we as employees could change what the company was doing. 
just the mere act of signing a letter could move the largest company, move the richest man in the world to do something. So that for me was a moment when I felt really empowered. And it was a moment when I realized there's something going on here. And how about you both personally, before you signed the petition or joined Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, did you have a lump in your stomach? How about that moment when you pushed the button? Tell me about that. One feeling that I had really strongly the first time I ever did anything related to climate justice at Amazon was nervousness. I was like asked if I could talk to my coworkers about the shareholder letter and about the resolution and I had never done anything like that. You know, I knew my coworkers, but I knew them as people through work. And we talked about what we had done last weekend, what we were going to do next weekend, and what we were having for lunch that day. Issues like climate change were not discussed. But I knew that what I was doing was important and that it was the right thing to do. So I pushed through that nervousness. And I also knew that if I couldn't do it, you know, someone with tremendous privilege and I am not on a visa. I can lose my job and ultimately be okay. And if I can't do that, how can I expect other people to do that? So the day before the big walkout, there's a global climate strike, September 20th. Greta Thunberg is uh, encouraging students around the world to uh, not go to school. There's the Amazon walkout. What was the mood in the office that day? Well, the day before the walkout was the day of the climate pledge that Amazon announced. So while there was excitement from the walkout, the questions that I was getting from all of my teammates is, what do you think about the climate pledge? And uh, are we still walking out? And I said, the climate pledge is a great first start. And heck, yeah, we're still walking out tomorrow. So it was an exciting energy. And that's the pledge where uh, Jeff Bezos said, we're done being in the middle of the herd on this issue, decided to use our size and scale to make a difference and pledged to be net zero by 2040, 10 years ahead of the Paris Agreement. So um, he kind of was clearly moved by, by the employees. So what was it like on the day of the actual walkout? Here it is, okay, this big day and... Uh, employees are in headquarters and around the country, around the world, really. Take us to that day. Yeah, that day was so exciting. Um, I went downstairs into the lobby and I had told all the people that I had spoken with and emailed with in my building about the walkout. Um, and I'm standing down there in the lobby with my team waiting. And a few minutes go by and I'm I'm like, oh my gosh, no one is coming it's not going to happen. I've been doing all this work. And then slowly people come out of the elevators, two here, two here, another one there. And I, I had a, a, a package of stickers. And so I was just handing out stickers to everyone. Do you want a sticker? Do you want a button? Um, what's your name? Thank you for joining us. And we all waited until uh, we had a kind of a critical mass of 20, 30 people. And we walked out and there's people everywhere and signs and media and pizza. And it was so exciting. It was like the most exciting thing that, that I've ever been a part of to see. And as we stood there and chatted with people and there are more, more and more buildings joining us at the spheres coming in just like these droves of people. Uh, it was it was unlike nothing else. Wow. What a feeling. 
How about you, Jacob? What was the experience like? I mean, I think a lot of it was similar. I was pretty nervous. I was waiting in the lobby also. And, you know, I had just gone around to everyone's desk that I had talked to already. I was like, okay, you coming? And they're like, yeah, just let me finish this, like, one last thing. <laughs> um, in the lobby, I had, like, maybe four or five people. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, months of work. And this is all I, this is all I got. Uh, but then more people came down and more people came down and we had to move out of the lobby into the patio outside because there's so many of us and turning the corner to see the crowd of people around the spheres was something I'll never forget. It wasn't just something we'd been working for for so long. It was here and it was finally happening. Was there ever any retaliation or pressure to not do this or to not to participate or not participate? No. Actually, um, a lot of employees took time off for the walkout uh, just to have the air cover. Um, and I think an Amazon official was quoted in a, one article saying that em employees can do whatever they want with their time off. So, you know, we haven't experienced any retaliation, not to say that it will never happen, but at this moment, it has not. And I think part of that is really because we are not being anti-Amazon. We are simply asking Amazon to take ownership over this issue, um, to take ownership over its impact, and to really live up to the high standards that we're held to every day on the job. What are the big levers, you know, the big sources of emissions? Is it the trucks? Um, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize how big Amazon Web Services is, that Netflix and a lot of the websites in America uh, run on Amazon Web, Web Services. Is it the packaging? What are the big levers? Well, it's, it's the things you just mentioned, the, the data centers are big uh, sources of, you know, carbon emissions. So it's the massive logistics network, all of the trucks, the vans, and everything combined is a carbon footprint the size of a small European country. So what do you think about the, you said that the, the Jeff Bezos plan, the pledge was a good first step. What else should the company do? There are still things that Amazon needs to do to be a leader in the climate movement. Firstly, that Amazon's committed to carbon neutrality. That doesn't mean we've actually committed to emissions reduction. Um, we can get our way to carbon neutrality through offsets. And in addition to that, we need to stop donating to politicians that don't believe in climate change. Uh, last year alone, we donated to 60 such politicians that are now in Congress. We also shouldn't be making technology that helps fossil fuel companies get oil and gas out of the ground. It needs to stay in the ground. So you think that Amazon should actively not pursue oil and gas, which are very sophisticated users of technology. They want to use the cloud and powerful computing to find more oil and gas and get it out of the ground. And you're saying Amazon shouldn't pursue that business? No, Amazon should not. A few weeks after they made the climate pledge, Amazon was at a conference actually for oil and gas, helping, I guess, market AWS products to help those, those customers. The science is clear. We cannot extract any more fossil fuels out of the ground. They have to stay in the ground. And Jeff and his climate pledge said he wants to be a leader in this area, but you can't be a leader if we're helping extract fossil fuels. That seems so obvious, right? Um, so we think that 
that's going to be a really important part of being a leader in this area is stopping um, soliciting that business from oil and gas. There's also a pledge for 100,000 Rivian electric delivery vans after Amazon invested in the company. A lot of uh, tech people look to innovation, you know, solutions. What, what innovative things uh, that or others is the company doing to solve some of the problem? So one thing that the company is pledged to do is uh, called Shipment Zero. Mm -hmm. They're planning on having 50% of packages be delivered in a carbon neutral way. And that is through electric vehicles and sustainable packaging. So that's something that they originally announced in a response to the shareholder letter that was sent out months ago. And so that was a direct result of Amazon employees organizing and making their voices heard. When it comes to some of the stuff that the Climate Pledge has introduced, and especially those uh, electric vans and electric vehicles, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about that we haven't seen addressed is piloting those, those electric vehicles and the new solutions for fulfillment centers in communities that are most affected by our pollution. If you're aware of the Inland Empire in California, which is San Bernardino and Riverside, uh, that's a huge warehouse hub. Amazon has warehouses there. People in those communities, which are largely communities of color, have increased respiratory disease and asthma as a result of all of the pollution around the logistics industry. And so for us, it's really important that Amazon actually looks at who is most affected by our carbon emissions and actually start to address those areas first. If they do a lot of stuff for the privileged people, it's just, it's not the place to start. We really want to start with the people who are most impacted by our pollution. Yeah, I would say that those people, you know, working in the warehouses, living near the warehouses and drivers, they're not just, you know, other random people. These are our coworkers. They're in our internal directory and their families are getting hurt by the pollution that our company is emitting. So there's no white-collar, blue-collar split in this movement inside the company? I would say that we're all on the same planet, and we're all in this together. If we're going to solve climate change, if we're going to effectively enact climate justice, we have to understand that. How has this experience changed each of you as a person? You, you came into the company. Jacob was a little more environmental. Sarah, not so much been a couple years. How are you as a professional and, and as a person changed by this experience? I think that the experience of working for something that matters is a transformative one. When I first had a conversation with my coworkers about climate change, I was really nervous. But as I kept having those conversations, they got easier and easier and more powerful every time. And in addition to seeing those transformations within myself, I've seen them in my other coworkers. We can talk about issues that matter, not just carbon emissions, but issues of human rights and other uh, and racial justice. The coworker who I spoke to that wouldn't sign on to the shareholder letter, that wouldn't vote yes on the resolution, they joined the walkout. How about you, Sarah? It's really changed me very quickly. I mean, I've been involved for six, seven months now. I remember a year ago, I definitely felt like there were not people at Amazon that cared as deeply about social justice and racial justice as I did. 
and I felt very alone and kind of isolated. And to see this group of people who think like I do and see the world as I do and care about the issues that I care about and to be able to join them and rally around the notion of environmental justice and actually get things done has really made me feel confident in tech workers, in Amazon workers, in myself. I just feel like a whole new person. That was Sarah Reed and Jacob Adamson of Amazon Employees for Climate Justice. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change and corporate culture. Coming up, winning hearts and minds in the boardroom. For almost every CEO I talked to, there was a personal reason. Like their kids talked to them, or they went to the rainforest, or they went to the Arctic, they took one of these trips. They needed to make it personal. They needed a story. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about corporate responsibility and climate change. My next guests are two experts long on the vanguard of infusing environmental values into corporate America. Joel McCower is chairman and executive editor of GreenBiz, a media group focusing on the intersection of business, technology, and sustainability. Andrew Winston is a veteran consultant and author of Green to Gold, How Smart Companies Use Environmental Strategy to Innovate, Create Value, and Build a Competitive Advantage. We've been hearing a lot lately about the climate ambition gap, the space between what's needed to cut carbon pollution to safe levels and the action that companies and governments are taking. Joel McCower has some insights. First of all, I see a... a inflection point in the conversation about business and climate, which is, I think, fundamental to what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. And it's kind of flipping the script from uh, the traditional conversation about what is business doing to the climate to what is the climate doing to business? Mm -hmm. um, and in a world of, you know, fires and floods and, and heat waves and hurricanes and all of that, there's a lot of risk involved, uh, supply chain risk, business continuity risk, uh, you know, right to operate risk if you're a big water user in a, in a water mm -hmm. stressed area. And so the conversation is really a lot more risk focused than it used to be. And, and, and in some ways, the, the gap, yes, there is an ambition gap, and, and, and we'll get to that, but the, the gap is between the risk people inside companies and the sustainability people. Mm. They don't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't, in many cases, don't even know each other. And when they do talk to each other, they, they often realize that they don't speak the same language. They don't even talk about risk in the same way. So, I mean, fundamental to, to this ambition gap is, is sort of this, this new understanding of, of where, uh, of, of the relationship between business and climate. And yes, I mean, you see, uh, I've been doing, uh, involved with the aviation industry a lot lately. And, if you look at uh, where pretty much every major sector is going, uh, based around the Paris Accord and, and, and a lot of other uh, science-based target initiatives, it's getting to net zero carbon by, by mid-century, by 2050. The aviation industry, they want to cut their uh, climate emissions in half by 2050. So that's not going to work. Uh, that's, that's an ambition gap right there within a sector Never mind the actual company operations. 
One thing on, on aviation, I've heard from people that flight shaming, uh, which is taking off in Europe and kind of coming to the United States, is getting the aviation industry interested in a way that it's getting their attention. Because if their product is shameful, that that's different. That's new for them. Yeah, it's more than that, though, Greg. It's uh, it's also uh, yeah, that that's true, and particularly in Europe. And in, in, in Europe, it's not just the this flight shaming. I mean, the German finance minister uh, back in September said that it was going to uh, raise the taxes on intra-German flights and lower the taxes on intra-German train rides uh, in order to. Uh, so that's a that's a existential hit, at least within the domestic mm-hmm. market. Um, but it, it's also if you talk to, for example, uh, corporate sustainability folks, which I do all the time, is, and they'll say, you know, we've done so much, the proverbial low-hanging fruit. We've, we've done our facilities and our products and we've worked with our supply chains and uh, we've got, you know, we've switched to renewables and we've, we, we've done a whole range of energy-related and, and other things within their area of influence. But flying has been the biggest piece of it that they haven't figured out how to do that and obviously the best answer is don't fly and for some reason companies haven't figured out that that's i mean they haven't found good viable options telepresence was going to change all that and it hasn't really mm-hmm. uh you can do some things uh with telepresence but not a lot people still want to press the flesh so i think there's a lot of risk in the in corporates uh more so than individual uh travelers saying uh, we have to cut back our flying, and that becomes a big, big risk for the aviation sector. Uh, Andrew Winston, sustainability has often been kind of in a green box, sort of as Joel mentioned, sort of the sustainability people are not the kind of the heavy hitters, not always the CFOs, the people who are working on risk or capital allocation. Uh, Is that changing? You recently wrote about a survey of 1,000 CEOs that Accenture and the UN Global Compact did. Uh, What did that study find? Yeah, it's interesting. Can I, I want to build on a couple things Joel said, sure. if, if that's okay. You know, so I think that this risk cycle is really interesting because, you know, we started maybe 40 years ago where risk from a company perspective was just regulation, right? It had this kind of narrow definition. And then over years we moved to, oh, we can reduce cost. We can innovate and create new products. We can, you know, create value in other ways. And I agree that we're, we're kind of back to this risk discussion, but it's much more both tactical. And in addition to what Joel said, there's this you know, discussion of systemic risk, right? The risk to society, the risk of climate change and, you know, making a city uninhabitable. And so you see the banks and institutional investors starting to come to the table now because they have this long-term view on that. But, you know, I think this gap that we're seeing, there is a fundamental challenge now in, you know, all of sustainability, which is, I think on some level, the the debate about it being in the corporate sector is over. And part of this uh, Accenture UN Global Compact study of a thousand CEOs, you get that. You get the percentages, you know, 99% say it's on their agenda, basically. So it is like we won, right? We won the, the battle of getting it on the agenda. Every large company has a sustainability report. Every large company now has, you know, quantitative goals. Great. But at the same time, because of the science and what's happening in real time, it all feels kind of woefully inadequate versus what needs to happen on the science. And I think you get some of that sense that, you know, from these studies asking CEOs how important is this to them, that they're, it's a weird set of results because you get these very high percentages saying it's, it's important. 
um, that sustainability is important to the success of their business. And, you know, again, like 99%. But then some specific questions, you know, um, of these thousand CEOs, you know, how many are deploying low carbon and renewable energy, you know, 59%. How many see a net zero future for their company, you know, 44%. On some level, those are really low versus what needs to happen, right? Time yeah. compensation to uh, sustainability goals. Is also well, well, that's the funny part in that survey is just 62% of the CEOs said they would link their pay to sustainability after, after 99% said it's important <laughs> to the future success of their business. So they don't really want to put, you know, a good third or 40% don't want to put their money where their mouth is. So there is, there's clearly a gap in, in the pay side. And Andrew, you've written recently about uh, in, invoking companies to use their political power. We've heard for a long time, Sheldon Whitehouse will say, look, companies talk a great game. And when they come to Washington, D.C., it's about taxes, immigration, and climate does not cross their lips. And, Andrew, you said that, uh, and, and we've seen some recently, there was a letter from, what, 11 uh, heads of 11 environmental organizations took out this full-page ad in the, in the New York Times. Those that sort of work with companies, Environmental Defense, Conservation International. So, but we're in an era of great deregulation so why yeah. are companies going to go to Washington? It's like asking a teenager to, out to lobby their parents to, you know, to cut their <laughs> allowance, right? Who's going to do that? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question because I think, the, again, it's like a cycle back, right? These big environmental groups 40 years ago started with, we got to use policy and then realized, you know, policy might not be enough and went and targeted companies and citizen behavior. And we're back to policy in a way because, again, we're so far along the path on climate change that we now need such big systemic changes that we need big policy. And that's part of the logic, which is if businesses believe that it's important to their future or they can't thrive without a thriving planet, then they need policy to back that up. But it is going against this, you know, maybe 50-year culture of kind of the neoliberal order of, you know, businesses fighting to be released from all the shackles of government, where government relations people, their job is to cut regulation. Um, and you see this battle real time going on in the auto industry right now, mm. uh, where you've got a split between some of the majors saying, OK, we want to go along with California's higher cafe standards, fuel efficiency standards, and others saying, no, we want to slow down and kind of doing the typical fighting of, of more pro-climate legislation. So there are still very few companies that really show up, as Senator Whitehouse says, because it's so against their culture, even if it's in their interest to fight for a price on carbon, say. Right. And again, the, the lobbying people often, Joel McCower, don't talk to the sustainability people. There's a bunch of lawyers and then there's a bunch of greenies. Yeah, the government relations hasn't communed well with, with sustainability. But this is starting to change. And I think we're going to see this over the next year or two or three, some of these things take a while, a lot slower than we would all want to happen. And there's three sort of entry points for this. One is uh, elevating CEOs that are out there speaking about the need for climate policy that are actively engaging. It's a fairly small number now, but there are some efforts coalescing to uh, to hold them up and 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 give them uh, backstop them if you will from a from a reputational perspective and and you know elevate and celebrate those CEOs um two is that there's really never been sort of rankings of what companies are doing on the policy side with climate. What, what tends to happen is if you think of the bell curve with the, the, those two small ends on either side and the big fat middle, 
at the ends are the companies that are proactively engaged, the Patagonias and a you know, relatively mm -hmm. small handful of others. And, of course, at the other end are mostly fossil fuel and, and the ones that want, want to stymie any further progress. But in the big, fat middle or most companies that, to Andrew's point, are just staying quiet. We're, we're going to start to see some efforts where silence is complicity and it's no longer acceptable. You're going to have to get off the sidelines, to use the football metaphor, and get into the game one way or the other. And, and companies that aren't, I think, are going to find themselves facing some new pressures. And that gets to the third leg of the stool, which is employees. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's starting to be some efforts to organize employees to basically take a page from the LGBT uh, effort that you, when, when there were these bathroom bills in, uh, in North, Car uh, North Carolina and Georgia and some other places that employees said, you know, we, we, we don't want to do business there. We don't want to go to conferences there. We're going to pull our meetings from there. I think there was an NCAA game in Charlotte that may have been yep. canceled or moved. Yep. Um, how, so the question is, how do you leverage employees to say, we want you, our company, to to get in the game again? Um, and that, you know, in a, in, a, in a competitive job market where everyone is looking for talent, uh, particularly at the, you know, middle and higher levels of, of, of uh, skill sets, that becomes a pain point if you're not seen as proactive and engaged and, there's, and, and you're starting to see... Uh, the, the next generation or even the current generation of, of mid-career job changers not wanting to work for those companies. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to see uh, that dynamic changing. But then earlier in this podcast, we talked with some Amazon employees who were who are part of that pressure. You mentioned CEO leadership. Uh, Paul Pullman has retired from Unilever. Uh, uh, David Crane uh, got fired from NRG for going too far. Who are the real leaders now that are really pushing the envelope? Andrew or, or Joel? I, I don't think there's many who have stepped in quite yet to, to fill a lot of what Pullman was doing. He was really unusual for this last decade. I, I think arguably, um, uh, you know, uh, Faber at Nestle has, has kind of, excuse me, at Danone, um, has, you know, really stepped up and is incredibly fluent in, in this. And there's the smaller company CEOs, like there always has been. I mean, you can always go to Yvonne Chouinard at, at Patagonia for some, you know, good coverage on the problem with capitalism. I mean, there's a lot of companies doing great things, but it comes back to this political question. The CEOs, in my experience, have been, it's not totally understandable to me, really, why you've seen companies come forward, as Joel said, on bathroom bills, on LGBT rights, on immigration, on guns, right? Like Dick Sporting Goods saying, we're not going to sell Doug McMillan at, at Walmart, you know, cutting certain ammunition, but much less comfortable talking about climate which is really odd. I'm not sure I would have predicted that, that they would talk about trans rights comfortably before climate. It shows you that it's they made climate so political. And by they, I mean kind of a concerted effort. And there's lots of research backing this up from the Koch brothers, from Exxon, from others for 40 years, right? Making it a, making it a political issue, making something that's a science issue with political ramifications into purely political. And so you've gotten CEOs uncomfortable about getting a mad tweet from the president or getting on the wrong side of a particular party. Um, and it's really, it's very hard to get past that culturally right now. Andrew, I, I mean, I agree. And, and, but I also think it's important to point out that LGBTQ issues are very personal and political. Right. Um, and I think, and that's been as political probably as, as climate in a lot of ways, but it's personal. Andrew, you've written about how, uh, you know, the motivations for CEOs that really they ought to think about legacy because there's the, the business case only goes so far. 
that you know leaders need to think about their, taking it really to a moral plane. That this is my legacy. Uh, maybe Pullman did that. Uh, you know, is that going to be is that going to work to get some leaders to really think about take some risk and lean in and think about their legacy? Yeah, I think. You know, we need leadership so badly, right? We, the companies can only go so far without CEOs behind it. And I've, I've probably, I wouldn't say done a 180, maybe a 90 degree turn over the years um, on this question of how do you reach people personally. I mean, you know, my first book was Green to Gold. It was very, you know, clear cut that green makes money, right? And that was what was maybe needed for that time. But I, you know, I've done some research with CEOs and and asked a bunch that that are leaders in sustainability and that talk about it a lot. You know, why did they come to this? And the business case stuff that Joel and I have been working on for um, far too long, each of us, um, it's there and it's good that the case has been made and they kind of say, yeah, I, I know that. But it was like the third or fourth reason for almost every CEO I talked to, there was a personal reason, like their kids talked to them or they went to the rainforest or they went to the Arctic, they took one of these trips. They needed, as Joel said, it to make it personal. They needed a story. Um, and so I've you know come around that we have to hit people as as business beings, but also kind of moral beings, I think at different times, I, I think if you're if it's the day before the quarterly meeting with your investors talking to your CFO and CEO about the morals of climate change may not work. But over a drink at the annual retreat, maybe you talk about their legacy and their kids and what they're doing with their lives. And I find that that, that there is some part of that that grabs people. You need, I guess, both, you know, both the head and the heart. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about closing the corporate ambition gap on climate change. We've just heard from Andrew Winston, author of Green to Gold, and Joel McCower, executive editor of GreenBiz. Coming up, investor relations. How are markets already pricing in the costs of climate disruption? To put it very simply, what is going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years has already been determined by the emissions that have happened in the past 20 years. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about how corporations are responding to the climate crisis and what their action or inaction says to their employees, customers, and investors. Swami Vikant Raman is a senior vice president in the Environmental, Social, and Governance Group at Moody's Investor Services. And Sarah Law is head of global initiatives at the Carbon Disclosure Project. CDP gives nearly 140 companies an A rating on their carbon disclosure. Some of the names I was surprised to see on the A-list were Bayer, new owner of Monsanto, global mining giant BHP, and Nestle. How did these companies with bad environmental reputations end up with such a high score? It's a good question to put forward. You know, how do you square the circle when you have some companies who are demonstrably you know, in the news for reasons that might suggest that they're not performing well on climate? 
Um, but the, the work that we do here at CDP is to try to uh, ask a, a most holistic set of questions as possible. Um, we think that the, the bedrock of trying to make assessments about this type of thing is to first of all have good information. And so one aspect um, is that, you know, it's the uh, fulsomeness of the disclosure, you know, that information that companies share. But equally, we recognise that transition to a low carbon economy is a journey. And so where we see demonstration of progress um, and signs of best practice, um, we take a relative measure, a, be a benchmark of one company against the other. And that leads us to position some companies as A and all the way ranking down to like a D minus. I do want to remind um, you that th there are some companies that get an F, um, which recognises that they don't disclose at all. Swami, let's get you on. Disclosure is increasing uh, uh, transparency, but are companies disclosing the right things? And do investors have good information now to make uh, investment decisions based on the climate risk the companies are disclosing? Uh, short answer is no. Very often they are not disclosing what's really important. Um, and also there is a lot of inconsistency in what companies are disclosing. And so it becomes hard to really compare one company with another. Um, so what we are doing is uh, we, just like CDP is doing a lot of great work in getting companies to disclose, uh, we have some limitations in what we can require companies to do given our sort of role in the markets. We, we generally try to avoid telling companies what to do on any aspect of things. Uh, however, that's not to preclude our participation at an even more higher policy-making level. So our chief credit officer is a member of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure uh, called the TCFD. And uh, what we do there is they have come up with a very comprehensive set of guidelines on what and how companies should be disclosing about their climate risk. And we have part of that uh, TCFD, and we are part of making those recommendations, and we certainly would push for companies to disclose, or we support the TCFD's uh, recommendations. I think that would go a long way in solving both of those puzzles. One is not being consistent. Second, very often not being relevant. The third thing we find is even where companies do disclose, it is often partial and they don't go to the most important thing, the bottom line, if you will, which is how does it actually affect your cash flows and your assets? And how, does it, how is it financially material to you? That is something very few companies do today. CalPERS, the big uh, California pension plan, said that the biggest 100 emitters should be required to report because they pose wide risk to the economy, systemic risk. Um, Swami, do you think that some companies should be required to fully disclose because they pose such a systemic risk to, uh, to the global economy? See, I think even if you look at it from a more fundamental point of view, right, you have FASB that sets accounting standards, right? Financial Accounting Standards Board. Companies are required to disclose a whole lot of things, including things like pension costs and other things that they're not going to be paying anytime in the near future, but which are relevant to the assessment of the financial well-being and the future prospects of corporations. So this idea of requiring companies to disclose relevant and material things is actually not very new, and it's actually being done. 
Sarah, how do you know that company that investors actually you put the information out there, but how do you know that that uh, mutual funds and other companies that make investment decisions, individual investors, do they use the information that's out there? Because a lot of people get these complicated disclosures, proxy statements. They don't sure. pay attention. Well, Greg, I, I want to answer that question, but I just want to to say um, in building off Swami's response that whilst um, requirement of disclosure is a matter for regulators to address. The fact that we lack um, consistent disclosure across all companies, not just those that are systemic imp systemically important, make it incredibly difficult to compare like for like um, and to come up with a true benchmark. Um, so I, I feel for my, my friend across the table, Swami here, um, and I can tell you that it's a challenge for CDP as well. It's led us to have to do some work around modelling of emissions, um, for instance, um, for us to be able to provide uh, a true snapshot of any uh, economy or a sector to be able to give um, helpful insights. Um, but to come back to your question, and it actually links up, we do this because there's actually been direct demand from our um, investor signatory base for them to have a, a clear set of information so that when they come to making capital allocation decisions, uh, it's not a patchwork um, where they can't look at company A compared to company B. Um, and your question to me is specifically, how do we know, how do I know that investors are truly using this information? Um, the, um, the work that you pointed to so um, before, for instance, um, the Climate Action 100 Plus, um, that is actually an investor-driven initiative based off CDP data that has helped to identify those 100 systemically important companies. And that has then been the foundation for an in investor-driven engagement campaign with super specific asks as to what companies need to do um, and a whole program of work um, that that collection of investors can now follow um, to help change the, the markets that they, that they can influence. Much more specifically, um, you've got investors such as the New York State Common Retirement Fund, who's used CDP data to build up a special climate index um, that started at $2 billion, um, has been upped to $4 billion, um, and is showing returns on investment that benchmark as well as the, as the regular indices uh, in terms of investment return. That's quite concrete. A lot of investors look at the economy and they, they divide it into sectors, pharmaceuticals, industrials, uh, transportation, tech. What are the sectors that have the, the biggest uh, vulnerabilities to uh, where climate risk is lurking and investors may not see it? I think everyone knows that oil and gas has big climate risks, but what other sectors have climate risks that people may not be aware about because it's not being disclosed or reported? Mm. Um I'm really glad you asked that question because there's the um, objective reality of which sectors are exposed to high risk. And then there's um, self-recognition, um, whether those companies are actually disclosing it themselves. Um, so we released a report around the summertime based on the 2018 data set that showed that um, in, a, an industry like the power industry uh, surprisingly uh, disclosed many more opportunities arising from a low carbon transition than the risks we would expect to see. Um, now, that's one, objectively speaking, you would expect to see a greater degree of risk, whether it's related to um, an increase in the cost of capital um, now and into the future for them, um, a lesser demand um, for their existing products and services. 
Um, but interestingly, where we saw high disclosure of risk was actually coming from the financial services sector. Um, and we believe that that relates to a growing awareness that not just the uh, risks inherent in their direct operations, but they are the, the funders and the bankers of the rest of the, of the economy. And where those assets start to look shaky, um, that might mean earlier retirement or even write-off, that exposes greater risk for the financial sector. Swami, let's get your take on that. Where do you see uh, the biggest lurking risks that are not being disclosed in the economy? So there are a couple of uh, points to be made there. One is uh, Moody's has something called the environmental risks heat map. And think of the heat map as sort of like a traffic light system for the kind of environmental risks faced by different sectors. So we have red, orange, yellow, and we have a blue as well for low risk. Um, the environmental heat map goes beyond just climate change or carbon transition, rather, the, uh, beyond a focus on just carbon emissions. It also looks at just the direct physical risks from climate change, you know, rising sea levels and temperature and hurricanes and so on. It also focuses on water. It focuses on pollution and dis waste disposal issues and so on. But we do have uh, a big focus on carbon transition as well. So the heat map gives a color for every sector for each of these environmental uh, areas. So for carbon in particular, if that's an issue on ca carbon emissions, we identified 16 sectors which have either very high or high exposure to carbon transition risk from a financial materiality perspective. So those sectors include, from our perspective, it includes utilities, it includes oil and gas, automobile manufacturers, uh, surface transportation, cement, steel, airlines, shipping, and so on. So, so not exactly uh, a surprising list, but it, it, it serves to put these sectors on notice for financial materiality, right? In our view, for example, to your question on banks, um, we don't have them in the high-risk category from a financial materiality perspective, meaning uh, most banks, while they do fund uh, sectors including oil and gas and so on, they very rarely take on long-term exposures. They're not investing in the bonds of these companies, for example, right? They're simply a lot of the time providing working capital, other forms of things. Some, some banks do provide uh, project financings, especially outside of the U.S., where there is some little more longer-term exposure. But by and large, the, the role of banks is important from the perspective of let us try to turn companies' investments around. Let's use banks as a lever to influence what companies do. But we didn't see banks themselves as having very high or high exposure. We've been talking about corporations. I want to talk about cities. You both uh, play, they play an important role. The municipal bond market is a close to $4 trillion, uh, relied on for retirees, uh, for a steady, safe, relatively safe income. Uh, cities rely on that to build schools, bridges, hospitals, et cetera. Is there climate risk in cities, Sarah Law, and is it being fully disclosed to investors, all the people buying municipal bonds? Is it being fully disclosed? Um, the answer has to be no. 
I think disclosure um, in cities um, is uh, maturing uh, as a notion. And I just want to put it this way, that there is no same um, compulsive um, uh, feedback loop, uh, so to speak. In the corporate world, the success that we've had in pushing for disclosure is because uh, investors are asking for it. The Cities Program on Disclosure and CDP, which is nearly 10 years old now, um, has come purely through voluntary action. So we're seeing it you know, grow very steadily, but there's a lot still to be learnt. So I don't think all risks have been disclosed yet. Swami, your, your thought on whether there's a ticking time bomb in the municipal bond market where there's climate risk that cities who are working very hard, some of them, to, to address climate, but they're not fully disclosing or f- fully coming to grips with their own climate risk of the, of the bonds they're issuing. Um, it is true, but there is a difference between corporations and cities. And the difference is that, by and large, the corporations that are the focus of disclosure requirements and regulations are corporations that uh, emit carbon dioxide and cause climate change. And so from their perspective, it's carbon transition risk. It's the risk uh, that as the world transitions to a low-carbon world, that their businesses and cash flows would be affected. Uh, This is by and large true for corporations. There are some corporations that have physical risk as well. But by and large, if you look at cities and counties and states and countries, the risk is mainly physical risk. It's the actual risk from rising temperatures, changing rainfall patterns and sea level rise and, and hurricanes and so on and so forth. There may be some of them that also have transition risk, notably, you know, if you think of oil exporting countries or oil producing regions which benefit from those royalties and revenues, they will lose that if oil consumption falls. So there are some exceptions in the state side as well. But by and large, if you're talking about the municipal market, you're only talking about carbon transition risk. Okay, and how are these two different? In the case of carbon transition risk, um, you're really talking about how regulations could affect the companies in the next few years as, because they have to begin the transition right away. Right? In the case of cities, what you're talking about is when is temperature, right, temperature and rainfall patterns going to change, when, how much is the sea level rise going to be. There is, uh, there, there is a lot of uncertainty in terms of how the climate is going to respond. We know there's going to be a response. We don't know what that is. What we do know is that what we do in the next 10 to 15 years uh, in terms of actual emissions ironically enough, doesn't really matter over the next 10 to 20 years for the cities and for countries uh, because there is, there is some, this is somewhat complicated climate science, but to put it very simply, what is going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years has already been determined by the emissions that have happened in the past 20 years. There is a latency. Right, there's effect. a lag in the there's system. There's a lag in the system, right. exactly. So right. what we don't know is what's the uncertainty in how climate is going to respond and and but you're right. Cities, uh, it's not an excuse not to grapple with that, not to disclose that. But the nature of the risks being faced by these two ent- uh, types of entities are very different. We've been talking about climate change and corporate risk. That was Swami Venkat Raman, Senior Vice President of Moody's Environmental, Social and Governance Group, and Sarah Law, Head of Global Initiatives of the Carbon Disclosure Project. 
My other guests on Climate One today were Sarah Reed and Jacob Adamson of Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, Joel McCower of GreenBiz Group, and Andrew Winston, author of Green to Gold. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Thanks to Julia Drockman for field reporting. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.